the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them is also the the nexus of our power. Mm. If we believe that first anxiety story, it's a pretty dark world. But if we hear that anxiety story and we playfully question it, other feelings can come in. There's more possibility there. There might be something that you feel terrified about, something you've always wanted to do. It could be the performance that you've always wanted to do on stage. It could be anything. I suspect that the more afraid you are of it, the more information that is about possibly how important it might be. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Uninterrupted, where we chat to women making a big impact in the health and wellness space. I'm Lisa Gebilagin, Deputy Editor of Women's Health Australia. By the time you finish listening to this episode, I'm betting you'll have a name for that anxious voice in your head. You know, the one that tells you you're not good enough or fit enough smart enough, the voice that sabotages your good intentions. Today's guest, ARIA award-winning singer Claire Bowditch, calls that voice Frank. When she was younger, she had to tell Frank to fuck off quite often. Nowadays, she has a more polite relationship with him, where a simple, no thanks, will do. But it took a long time for her to get there. Claire shares her struggle with mental health in her new memoir, Your Own Kind of Girl, a book she promised she'd write once she got better, in order to help others who are going through similar dark periods. It's a beautiful, raw, and at times a funny read, and it also made me cry. In this episode, you'll get to know more about Claire and her story. We'll talk about the strategies that have helped her cope with anxiety, including more on Frank, how she learned to love her body after giving up her obsession with being thin, and how she turned her life around. As she writes in her book, what starts as a breakdown really can become the moment you look back on as a breakthrough, as the moment in which you started to live your own kind of life. Welcome, Claire. Claire, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. How are you doing? I even got my nails did just for this. Oh, lovely. And your makeup. (laughs) I did. I'm wearing full TV makeup just in case. No, it's wonderful to be here. Well, your book is such an honest and vulnerable exploration of coping with loss, mental illness and disordered eating. I absolutely loved the book. Oh, thank you. Look, it's a triumphant book and it's really um, about being a human being. These experiences that I've had are so common and so well shared. But because I have a particular kind of a memory and because I kept diaries all of my life, um, I've been able to write, yeah, it's probably is rather raw in parts, um, but I did want people to also get a few laughs along the way because, gosh, we're pretty funny, aren't we, us human beings? You are especially, though. <laughs> you are. <laughs> I did laugh quite a few times, but then there are also so many moments where I teared up quite a bit too. Mm. So which was a bit that made you cry? It was a bit when you had come home from living in England and your mum and your dad met you at the airport Mm. and just the feeling of relief that you described in the book. It just reminded me of when I had come home from a a few months overseas and just feeling that connection again with my family just because we're so close, you know. You know, when when you decide to go overseas, I decided on a whim. So I'm 20. And I've had a terrible breakup. I'm working in a call center. These big dreams are gurgling inside me. And, you know, the breakup was the impetus for me to go, stuff this. I'm getting out of here and I'm not coming back until I'm fabulous, you know. So off I went with not enough money and not enough um, emotional stability and really 
I wasn't prepared really for um for going overseas. And when I started suffering from insomnia over there, um, amongst other things, it really triggered this very um quick and quite a devastating decline into mental health. You know, I had what was commonly termed as a nervous breakdown, although my therapist, Ron, tried to get me to reframe it as a nervous breakthrough. Just yeah, like I love Brown's that. Therapist. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. And when I came home, I had lost about half my body weight. So I was very um, in, in quite a way. And I remember that feeling of thinking if I could just make it home after finally realising I needed to get home. Yeah. If I can just make it home and into my mother's arms, I'll be okay. Yeah. And so I got to the airport and mum greeted me with a, um, a, you know, a bunch of yellow flowers and I was just so relieved to see her. But unfortunately the symptoms of my anxiety did not go away. They no. carried on and amplified and I really had to get quite um, resilient to work out what the hell was going on and I was very lucky that I made a full recovery thanks to a few techniques I learned there which maybe we'll get a chance to chat about. One of the things that helped me recover though was telling myself, making a promise that I would one day um, write this book. Yes, I love that. And but not until I, w- I was old. And not until you were old, <laughs> until you were at least 40. That's right, really <laughs> old. Yes. And what I really wanted to tell you, I think your 21-year-old self would be so proud of what you've done. That's beautiful to hear. Thank you for saying that. And especially because it really came through in your book that you wanted to be able to share that hope that you found through other people's books and movies that you came across during that time. And I think you've done that really well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Knowing that you wanted this book to make such a difference in people's lives and to do that meant that you had to revisit those dark times of your life. Mm-hmm. Did that make it really hard to write? Look, I know what recovery is. I, I know that you can cure yourself from those symptoms of acute anxiety. It's not that anxiety dies. You know, we all have lower brains. We all have survival brains. Um, we're all, you know, if we're out and living good full lives, we're going to feel anxious. But learning a technique to manage my anxiety really saved me. And I learned it because I I read a book by Dr. Claire Weeks, um, who was a GP, with this really simple technique, an umbrella technique for teaching what she called a cure for nervous suffering. Um, So it's more just a, it's always felt right to me. And I've always known that at some stage I would I would pass it on, you know, and I've tried in my own little ways in in lines after music shows or on the internet or when people have written me letters. I've always tried to speak about Dr. Weeks and and also speak about um, the techniques that I made up to tell my inner critic who I called Frank, I named him (laughs) at a certain point, um, just because it it seemed a playful thing to do. Um, It seemed a way to make the voice lighter, telling Frank to effectively F off. You know, these are the things that I've done in my life to, to allow me to make the music I make and to do the, the work that I've done in the world and also just to be a mum and be the kind of mum that I want to be. Um, but the question was how difficult was that to do? Very yeah. is the truth of it, you know, to talk about the long tail of childhood grief, um, of losing a sister when I was young, the way that those thoughts um, became habits in my mind, thoughts about I should have done something to save her, I should have done more. Um, I should be able to protect my parents more and all of these sorts going on quietly inside a very little body, very little kid. Um, It was hard to go back there, but I feel that I'm not alone in my experience and 
my hope is that in speaking honestly about it, um, I'll let someone else off the hook so that they can get the help that they need. Yeah. I did think that too, because in your book too, you mentioned that you declined help um, when you were younger because the idea of having to admit that you had a mental illness kind of scared you. When I was in London, um, I'd had my first panic attack when a friend had collapsed on on a ch- on the tube, basically underground. So I'd had these symptoms of panic. Very clearly, I was shaking, my heart was racing, I was having um, ruminating thoughts, um, I felt thirsty, I couldn't eat. So there's all these sort of symptoms. I was quite sure I had a virus. So I went to the GP and she did some tests and she said, yeah, you might well have a virus. But she said, have you also considered, uh, you know, I think you might be depressed. She'd asked me about my sister and the way that it played itself out. She said, you know, you might you might be experiencing depression. And I said, you don't understand. That just didn't fit with the idea of who I was. You know, I was the life of the party. I was the bubbly one. I was the giggly one. And I had this, this secret history of anxiety and um, the whirlwind of incredible the drama of diets, which I'd been dieting, you know, for a decade by that stage. I've been dieting from a really young age. And that's another big part of the story that I just think is worth talking about because yeah. we do this to ourselves and we don't realise that we're damaging ourselves when we when we um, take extreme measures like that. So anyway, uh, I didn't like that idea and it took me a long time to really admit that she might have a point. I thought that a diagnosis would be like a cage. You know, there's a part of me that just didn't want to hear any words explaining, you know, what may or may not be wrong with my brain yeah. because I thought it was a life sentence. What I realise now is I really think of mental ill health, it's so common for any human being who feels to suffer at some point and to struggle to know how to deal with that suffering. At that stage, the only stories that I had about mental ill health were, you know, I thought of Van Gogh um, harming himself. I thought of Sylvia Plath in the bell jar and I thought of Virginia Woolf walking out into the river with stones in her pockets, you know, had these really sad, frightening stories about mental ill health. I didn't know. It was just something that a whole heap of us go through and get through the other side of, you know. And I guess people weren't talking about it as openly as they are now. That's right. I look back on myself and I say, I wish to God I had gone and gotten some professional help early. I wish I'd gone to a GP who understood. And if the GP didn't understand, I wish I'd gone to another one and got some help early on. But um, I didn't. And I recommend that you do, especially today <laughs> in in this world that we live in in Australia um, in, with Medicare. If you, you go and you have a chat with a GP and you get your mental health plan, you can access a number of um, Medicare rebated sessions and you might be able to learn these techniques from a professional, no. But this book, I hope, is a starting point for some people who are, who are like me. Um, they wanted somewhere simple to begin and they wanted hope. Yeah, and I think you provide that. And because when I was reading your story, there were many times when I thought, hang on, this is something that I go through and it wasn't something that I thought I could necessarily get help with before. But mm. That's what I loved about your example that you're setting and being able to open this conversation. I was even chatting to some of the girls in the office about your book before this podcast and talking about how um, you name that voice in your head, Frank. Yes. And they love that. And they said they're 
I think one of them is going to call their voice Amelda. <laughs> I love it. And another one had named her something else. But they had also done something similar where mm. they acknowledge that anxious part of their brain, mm. but they also then accept it and just mm. keep on going. It means a lot to me to hear that. Thank you. Because I, I all the way through writing this, I kept thinking, I know, I suspect there's something useful in this conversation. Um but I, you know, when you take on a big task like writing a book, you really trigger your inner critic to, yeah. you know, to get right back up there. So I guess we should talk for a little minute about what is that, and especially from a health perspective, what is that inner critic, that saboteur, that um, lizard brain, you know, that that voice of the devil, what is that? And And my understanding of the framework that's really helped me is just to understand that we have a lower brain, we have a higher brain. That lower brain is our survival brain. It's a part of our brain that has been inherited across species. You know, that's the bit we pass on. That's allowed us to survive. If we're in a famine situation or we were in, we need to save our child quickly or we're in danger, that part of our brain kicks in, it gives us uh, the energy and fear that, that helps us move, fight or flight. But we also have a higher brain, you know, and in today's society, um, our lower brains are constantly triggered, agitated, um, and they can go a little rogue pretty easily. They're always on. Remembering that we do have a higher brain, that we have the ability to say, hey, no, nah, I'm okay, or yeah. hey, no, worry, you can go away for now. Just having a simple go-to technique or and naming that inner critic, which is what I did intuitively and now um, – I've been told that this is now a, quite a common CBT technique or cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. I just think it's an intuitive technique that that our brain goes through at a certain point. When we really want to recover, we get quite creative. Mm. And I like to, I think you're talking about the two parts of our brains. Mm. I feel like for a lot of people, objectively, it makes sense to listen to the higher functioning part of our brain, right? but it is that inner critic that just gets so loud sometimes. Well, we're constantly watching the news, which is triggering our fear. Mm. We're in a society where the foods we're eating aren't the same as foods, you know, from, from a long time ago. Our bodies have to process things more uh, in different ways. You know, we basically, in short, we've changed a lot in the last 100 years. Technology, um, <laughs> technology, even electric lights, you know. So our poor little brains, we haven't quite, caught up yet and I think that's okay as long as we have language through which to understand that we can reassure ourselves our higher brain that higher way of thinking is always accessible to us mm. it, it you know it feels like it's not and when you're in the throes of anxiety it really feels like your choices are very limited but just being able to take a breath and it, and I know I'm making it sound really simple I must make a very fine point it took me a long time to to understand these habits and to really practice them. But the hopeful part was that I understood I would recover yeah. with practice. And, you know, I'm 20 years down the track now. I've I've lived a life facing a lot of my fears <laughs> and I don't think I could have done it unless I'd had this experience early on actually. How old were you when you felt like you could start talking about it to others? Well, one of the things that was incredibly helpful, so I found my techniques for dealing with the immediate symptoms of panic, you know, the sweating palms. This was, again, Dr. Claire Weeks's technique. I call it the FAFLE, <laughs> which is an acronym for her technique, which was you face the situation, accept the situation, 
you float through, you know, and you let time pass. And essentially what that's saying is it 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 nips the bud of the fear of fear. Like so fear itself or anxiety itself is not the problem. It's the anxiety about the anxiety. It's the fear of the fear that creates that house of mirrors in which we have a panic attack or you know, sometimes develop into um, more serious mental ill health um, problems. I started talking about it first with a therapist and I spent several years talking about it with a therapist and I don't really think, a lot of my friends even who've read this book and my family, they say we really had no idea of the depth of, um, you know, the, 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 the darkness that you can go to when it comes to um, these kind of storms, these weather patterns. Yeah. But again, I needed to talk about it in that detail because in the detail is where we feel less alone. And it was reading of other people's details and of their recovery that helped me go, ah, I'm not so special. I'm not so abnormal. <laughs> no. um, I'm a human being having a human experience. And, you know, anxiety is a sort of a self-limiting experience. We catastrophize it. We think all these you know, terrible things are going to happen. But that's really just one of our body's ways of trying to keep us alive and trying to keep us bright. Mm. And, you know, we get to be adults in that situation. So talking about it and understanding it was a big part of my recovery. One tactic that I loved in your book was the acceptance part. When if a thought came into your head, like, for example, in your book, you said maybe you'll never be well enough to have a music career Mm. and just going, I accept that maybe... I never will be well enough to have a music career. Yeah. It sounds so count- counterintuitive. Yes. But I've been trying it. Yes. And it works. High it five. kind of <laughs> high five, my friend. <laughs> it kind yeah. of lessens the heaviness of it. It does. So this was, you know, to put this in context, I would stay, I couldn't sleep for a long time and it was distressing. Um a lot of the reason I couldn't sleep, I look back now and realize it's because I was really afraid of not being able to sleep. <laughs> Just sit at night, ruminate and worry and worry and worry. And one day when I decided that I would not put any condition on the worry, my worry brain, my Frank, could worry as much as it wanted and everything that it hit me with, I wouldn't fight. I would float. I would accept. Um you know, all those thoughts about maybe I'll never be well enough to be a mother. I accept that I may never be well enough to be a mother. You know, maybe it was my, you know, my mind would go to all sorts of places, not only to the guilt of something I could have done um, to save my sister, but it would, you know, go to all sorts of places, the Holocaust, you know, it would go to um, things that were circumstances I had no control over. Mm. And all I had to do was accept that I had a brain that was going to make up stories and that I had the potential in me to tell a different story. So I think if I were to paraphrase the lesson I learned, the lesson I want to pass on, and the whole point of this this memoir, it's to say that, you know, the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them is also the the nexus of our power. Mm. If we believe that first anxiety story, it's a pretty dark world. But if we hear that anxiety story and we playfully question it, other feelings can come in. There's more possibility there. So what kind of stories do you tell yourself now? We are storytelling beasts. It's how we make meaning. Um, It's how we connect with each other. It's just Mm. a natural, normal part of our brain and of the way we negotiate and navigate identity in the world. Um, 
I would love to say that my Frank never tells me stories anymore, you know, <laughs> um, and that's just not true. The, the reality is every single time I, I try and do anything that matters in the world, I get a series of stories about how I'm putting myself in danger, um, how it's easier to just stay with the pack, how I should keep my opinions to myself. And I get all sorts of stories, really, me as a woman in this society, I get all sorts of stories about my body and my feelings, that I should stay small, that I should keep my feelings to myself. These are all just habits and things, stories that I've picked up from society. I didn't make them up myself. They're there in society. They exist. I'm not here to judge whether they're right or wrong. All I can say is they're not really useful to me. Mm. So I choose not to believe them and not to make them so. I choose to believe that regardless of my body size, I still have the right to swim at the pool, to um, make music on stage, to show up in the world. If I listen to the stories that my first, you know, my brain tells me, um, I would have to count myself out and I would never have written this book. So an example of a story I was told during the writing of this book, you know, it was I told myself quite often, um, I'm never going to finish it. It's too hard. It's too personal. You're making a mistake. Why don't you just tell the stories about Leonard Cohen and going on <laughs> tour? And, um, I chose to tell a different story to myself. I had to remind myself, no, I'm writing this to um, to honour the promise I made as a 21-year-old and I'm writing it because I know I've got a hopeful story and I can share it. So my, you know, I had the power to keep giving myself the um, impetus to keep going. Just one example. But I I suspect now that every time I'm onto something that matters, I pretty much shit myself. And that is a normal (laughs) part of the human brain. Um, So maybe if you're, there might be something for anyone who's listening, there might be something that you feel terrified about, something you've always wanted to do. could be as simple as line dancing. It could be, the performance that you've always wanted to do on stage, it could be um, to attempt to fall in love again, it could be to go for the promotion, it could be anything. I suspect that the more afraid you are of it, um, the more information that is about possibly how important it might be. Yeah, for you. how much it means to you mm. to get those butterflies and that. The, yeah, this, that scared feeling. It's quite a thrill on the other side of facing that scared feeling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, see, I did something similar a few years ago when my uncle passed away. His, his death made me realise that I'd been living a life that wasn't necessarily mm. mine. And That's that, powerful. Yeah. It was so hard at the time. Mm. Um, but his death made me realize this. And I also realized the thing that was holding me back was fear. I was scared of failing, scared that it wouldn't work out or that I put myself out there and get ridiculed for it. So what I did every day for a year, I made a promise at my uncle's grave. I said to him that I was going to do one thing every day that scared me, even if it was little, like the, where, at the time, the, yeah. the sound of my phone ringing used to fill me with dread mm-hmm. and I wouldn't answer it. So one day it might be as little as just answer your phone <laughs> or even get lost in your lunch break. And then it built up to me eventually having an MMA fight 
So, you know, those cage fights. I do. (laughs) I'm impressed. I was not expecting that. I I built built my way up very slowly. But I figured if I could get into that cage, no work dramas, no relationship fears would ever feel as scary as someone wanting to bash my face in. (laughs) (laughs) And that worked. But what I realized during this time was that the fears that we have in our head are so much bigger than they turn out to be in reality. And just the habit of doing one thing a day that scared me just eventually just helped me build that confidence to then tackle big things like MMA fights. I had exactly the same experience as you did. And I think this is, um, yeah, I'm very inspired by hearing that. It's wonderful. Every little day, you know, I had a point in my life where even just leaving the house, you know, when I was 21, I was so unwell that even just leaving the house was terrifying for me. It all felt too loud. I was worried I would faint. Um, and all sorts of myriad of other fears, you know, that were just not logical. They were literally just my my fear brain on steroids. Um, slowly, 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 little by little by little. And my big build up was I just wanted to apply to an arts course. You know, I'd been working at the call centre and I found it really hard to say out loud, I actually want to sing. I want to make my living as a singer in yeah. Australia. I had an idea that, you know, there were um, you had to weigh a certain amount, look a certain way. You had to give over your rights to a record company. I had all sorts of stories about why I could never, ever, ever do that. In the meantime, I wasn't singing, you know. So getting back to that basic thing of what is the thing that you want to do? All right, I'll start doing that in my bedroom, you know. Mm. And it's amazing what happens when you take a little tiny step towards your dream. Yeah. The story that came into my mind was when you found yourself locked in the cemetery. Can you tell the (laughs) listeners about that story? I can. So I had been um, really, I'd come home, I was very unwell and I was lucky, very, very fortunate to have a family who loved me in a place where I could convalesce and get my head around whatever the hell was wrong with me. I found the book by Dr. Claire Weeks and I realized, ah, I'm suffering from, you know, what she called nervous suffering, which is a wonderful blanket term for what really could have been PTSD or OCD or any of those symptoms fell under her umbrella. And her technique, you know, I tried that faffle um, slowly. (laughs) So, you know, I'd walk to the corner and then come back again really quickly because the fear would come up again. But I started extending that, um, you know, to going on longer walks. And over the course of a number of weeks, I worked myself up to a very long walk all the way to um, Cheltenham Cemetery in Sandringham, which is where I grew up. And there in the cemetery, I lost track of time. I was spending some time with some beloveds who, 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 you know, I, I was sort of having a, a moment of, of reckoning in a way, you know, and yeah. I, I just was letting it all out. And then I looked around, the sun was going down and all of a sudden there was no one else in the cemetery and the gates were locked. <laughs> couldn't get out of the cemetery. And I think up until this point, I've still been a bit ambiguous about how much I, you know, whether, whether I was actually, um, I had what it took to recover. I'll tell you what, inside me came a strength that I did not know existed. (laughs) And I leapt over that fence and out onto the street and tore my t-shirt on the way down. And it was wonderful to know, oh my gosh, I really, I really do want to live and I really do want to get well. And I ran all the way home and my mum was out the front. She said, you know, it was before I had a mobile phone. She said, I was a bit worried. (laughs) I said, oh good. 
just been trapped in the cemetery. Um, I realised then in that moment too that my humour was coming back. You know, it was struck me as quite comical that I might, <laughs> of all things, be trapped in a cemetery yeah. overnight. But I got out, mates. Yeah. All good. All good. And you're here. <laughs> I am. I made it. And it's good too. It's just one of those examples of showing yourself, you know, you can do more than sometimes your head thinks you can do. Correct. In your book, you're also brutally honest about your obsession with your weight and body image. How have you been able to heal that relationship with your body? So I, I, in the book, I talk about the experience of feeling too big and too much mm-hmm. and that feeling being really clear in me from quite a young age. Around the age my sister was unwell and she lived in the children's hospital for two years. And it was a very complex um, time full of love and laughter in between all of the real tragedy and, um, you know, pain of all of that. And, again, it's a story that I spent many years working out how to tell correctly. So I won't sort of paraphrase it here for you. I will. I would just say that... <sighs> I had a lot of feelings and um, I also happened to have a big, strong Dutch body and I was quite a bit taller than the other boys at kinder. And um, it was pointed out to me at a certain point that I was too big. And that was a story that I was told about myself and for Mm. whatever reason I chose to believe it. And one of the frameworks that helped me get stability and safety was the regularity of meals. I really enjoyed food. It made me happy. It made me feel alive. And for whatever reason, I also had a body that, that put on weight. So my, my brother and I could eat the same amount, but I had a big body. I was much taller, much stronger. And um, I was a little fat kid, a little jiggly body. I really liked my body until it was pointed out again and again that my body was wrong. I was mm-hmm. teased at school. I learned to be a comic to deal with that um, feeling of being other. But by the time I was 10, I was done. I was really tired of feeling different and I wanted to feel quote unquote normal. Yeah. And my mom would say to me, but you're a peach, you're an Amazon, you're so beautiful. You know, she would try and convince me that I was just fine as I was. But I looked around me and there were no fat Barbie dolls. There were no fat newsreaders. There was no one with my body size in a position of success. And my little brain picked that up. So I went on my first doctor diet when I was 10 Mm, left so grade, I was very young and I left grade four and I came back in grade five, a really thin, tall person, and the world treated me incredibly differently. Yeah. All of a sudden the approval and the friendship um, that I'd craved um, was just on full tap and I loved that feeling but it also left me really confused about what my worth was in the world. Yeah, of course. My parents had told me it was my insides that count, not my outsides, but the world was telling me a different story. Both felt true and I believed them. So it started me on a really uh, tricky roller coaster of trying very hard to maintain my weight and to stay thin and, there was a lot, and I failed, you know, again and again and again. That's what I told my childhood self. And I didn't realise, of course, that the smartest thing a body can do when we're not giving it enough food is overeat, you know, yeah. that's especially when we're in puberty. We, we, I was a teenager. So um, I didn't think that was a story that I'd ever tell out loud because I was so ashamed of all my failure and it really came to a head when I was 21 as we've spoken about this story um, that I was fat and there was something wrong with me and I needed to be thin. And you could say that that was very much on the spectrum of disordered eating but we also live in a society where it's just normalised conversation. Yeah. We're always told we need to, you know, no one, do people say it out loud? Yeah, sometimes they do. We need to, again, control our weight, 
control our feelings and as women control our aging too. And that's how we get relevance and currency. So looking back now, it strikes me as no, um, it's quite logical that I would have that train of thinking and quite normal that um, millions of other women have that same line of thinking too. So we live in a culture that perpetuates that and I guess part of my um, growth as a human being has been to count myself in regardless of my weight on the scales. I have what I like to call a piano accordion body. It's seasonal, <laughs> it's tidal. Yeah. Um, sometimes in times of, of busyness and stress my, my weight changes, in times of childbirth it changes. Um, I don't have any sort of attachment or value to to that so much as I enjoy and love my body. I love moving it. I love taking care of it. And to me, it you know, it it was very difficult when that you know, if you're above a size fourteen when I was a child, you couldn't find clothes that fit you. Yeah. But the times are changing, and our conversation is changing around that. So I really love and. And work quite hard to be kind to my glorious body that gave me these children and gave me these feet for walking and these arms for holding people. Yeah, I, I feel like this is this an especially important message in the health and wellness space. Yes, when there's so much emphasis on looks, and especially with Instagram and how yeah. people are promoting this idea of what a healthy life looks like but it's not necessarily healthy at all. One of the frameworks that I really like and that's well-researched and founded in fact is the health at every size framework. Mm. So um, I think that's really useful to think around about health um, outside of the concepts of the BMI or so on. BMI is a useful chart for some, um, but when it comes to health, the health is available to us at all sizes and to not feel excluded from that is really, really important. So to start wherever you are and start with the concept that your body is a good body. All bodies are good bodies, you know. Yeah. I think that's really helpful and much more gentle. Definitely. And no matter what size too, because even in your book you pointed out um, when you came back from your trip in England, you came back thin. Mm -hmm. And you, when you had left Australia to come back home, you wanted to come back thin, but you said that it didn't end up giving you all the feelings that you hoped that it would give you. One of the stories we tell ourselves of hope is that one day I'll be better. One day yeah. I won't feel. One day I'll be happy. Pain. One day I'll be happy. And again, it's no wonder that um, as women and increasingly men in a society like ours, we pick up the story that when we're thin, we'll be happy. That's the story that's sold to us. And Look, I've been all different emotions at all different sizes of the scale. Like I said, my, you know, the piano accordion body. <laughs> um, and I, I think it never delivered, you know, what, what was delivered as a child um, and set me up really for that cycle of dieting was there was a lot of attention that I was given when I was a thin, thin kid. Um, but it didn't deliver happiness. What it delivered was lots of mums at school asking me to photocopy the diet and me feeling like I was doing something, you know, <laughs> that got the approval of the adults around me. Yeah. Um, you know, despite having been brought up in a good home with good values, that's what I picked up. So I now, again, I think we have the, the ability to self-direct in this, in this regard. We can be leaders in how we talk to ourselves and mm -hmm. in how we talk back to the messages of society and it just starts with simple stuff like being kind to yourself. 
Yeah. Sounds like baby steps because it is. Sometimes we have to start there. I certainly did. So for me, I'd never used to obsess with it until I started boxing and then you become obsessed with the scales because you have to get in at a certain weight. When I stopped fighting, I felt that still there, you know, it was weird, the obsession. Yeah, metrics can be incredibly reassuring. Yeah, but I ended up having to just get rid of the scale because it's like I don't need it now. It's not like I'm weighing myself for competition anymore. Mm. This is just becoming unhealthy. If I had a button here that could give one of these clap sounds, I would do that. (laughs) A round of applause. So I think that can be really, really useful. Yeah, just to be clear on that, that the information that it's giving you is not needed in order to, not needed in this current framework. If I were a horse um, or a a champion uh, boxer, (laughs) yes, you know, scales can be useful um, in that context. And some people don't have, some people don't have a problematic or sticky relationship with the scale. But if you're someone who does, and I I certainly am someone who who does, um, we can do ourselves a favour by just not buying into it. Yeah. Like but you the, said, it's a metric that doesn't necessarily need to matter. Yeah. I just make, make instead make yourself a tick chart, a star chart, and you get a star every morning just for waking up and you <laughs> star for speaking kindly to yourself. Um, yeah. Sometimes yeah. It's, it's completely understandable that we're looking for reassurance. Um, our society sets us up for that. But for me, freedoms really come from learning to self-reassure. Mm. In your early 20s, you decided that you wanted to have an amazing life. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You didn't want to have a little life. You wanted to, you know, you wanted to make a difference and it included things like making an album, traveling everywhere. (laughs) This is a list I wrote in my diary, by the way, just before I left for (laughs) London. That's right. Meeting the man of your dreams. Um, So now that you've completed a few of those things, What have you added to your amazing life list? Look, can I be honest? I'm so amazed. <laughs> I'm so like so thrilled. Writing a novel was right up the top there. Yeah. Um, I've written a memoir. Maybe I haven't written a novel, so you know that's <laughs> still there on that list. But to be honest, at the end of um, uh, you know, at the end of this week, I'm going to sit down and ask myself just that: what is next for oh. me? Because you know, much to my surprise, this book has. You know, it's it's um, amazed me at the kind of conversations and response we're able to have that I'm able to have now with people like your good self around this book and that's wonderful and it gives me a lot of heart. And I do need to sit down now and ask myself what's next. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. Um, like I said, maybe tap dancing, maybe, <laughs> maybe hang gliding. Um, i still got lots of dreams left in me. I will definitely be doing an album next year. Can I just say that? Oh, yeah, of it course. It has been seven years in between albums. and Seven years. My record company's waited patiently and so have the people who like our music. So that's top of the list for next mm-hmm. year, crew. Have you started writing songs? Yeah, the songs are written and the majority of the album's recorded. But I now, I now I, in the olden days, I used to sort of crush all these different projects in together. I love to pace myself now. I've loved giving my full attention to this book and I will for as long as it needs me. And then album. Finally, what advice do you have for those listening who might be going through something similar to what you had gone through? Well, my first thing is to say you will recover. If you want to recover, you will recover. Um, There is help available. The recovery might be simpler than you think. 
And it might just start with some good um, good techniques for learning to count yourself back in, learning to care for yourself slowly, slowly, and learning to try things a little differently. Um, again, I started with the techniques of Dr. Claire Weeks, the faffle technique, as I called it. You might just start with that possibility that, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if actually I can recover? Okay, so that's, you know, something I say really boldly, um, but with good evidence behind me now. Again, in the back of my book, I, I list a full stack of resources. I didn't want to write a book like this and not leave people with somewhere to go. So telling your story to a psychologist or GP can seem really frightening. Do it anyway. That's what I tell people. Just get into it and do it. Um, and you can always go online. There are all sorts of resources now. But we can overwhelm ourselves there. So I just start with the concept that you will recover, mm. you know, and that that's, that's, if that was possible for me, it's possible for you too. It sounds bold, but start there. Yeah. Thank you so much, Claire. That's my pleasure. It's been a real honour to be here. Lots of love to you and lots of love to everyone listening. And, yeah, I'm with you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Claire. Don't forget you can pick up a copy of her book, Your Own Kind of Girl, if you want to know more about her life. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review or subscribing. And if you'd love more from us, pick up a copy of the latest Women's Health magazine or visit womenshealth.com.au. Until next time. If you feel affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, help is available. Call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au and the Butterfly Foundation at thebutterflyfoundation.org.au.